Welcome to Texas Rising, a show that explores the driving forces behind the financial phenomenon that is the Texas miracle. Join your hosts, business leaders and dads, Jeff Bailey and Ben Coleman, as they bring you luminaries from across the great state of Texas to talk business, culture, public policy, and much more. And now, coming to you from deep in the heart of Texas, this is Texas Rising. Welcome back to another edition of Texas Rising. We're here with macro expert and family office extraordinaire, David Luttrell, who's local here to Dallas. David, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Ben. So as we alluded to, you're here to talk a little bit about macro, but before we get into what's happening in the world, a lot is happening. Macro is one of those classes that a lot of us are forced to take, you know, first, <laughs> second year of college in the introductory section. But You've made a career out of understanding it. What, what piqued your interest originally about diving into this this fascinating world? Well, sure. Um, Jeff and Ben, thanks for having me on talking about the dismal science. I, I'm certainly not an expert in anything, let alone macro, but I am happy to tell you how I became really interested in macro. And it's one of those good stories of I just fell into it. So while I had certain proclivities, my third grade science project was the compounding effects of interest. Not a joke. I don't I don't know how that counted. As one does. As a, as one as does. a science project. Typical um, third grader. Yeah, just, you know, eight eight years old and crushing it. You can tell the I had most a lot powerful of force in the universe. And Einstein say that or something? It, it is. And so what I learned being a finance nerd my entire life was that then graduating with a degree in finance and a double major in economics. I graduated in the financial crisis. And so who was hiring? Well, the Federal Reserve was hiring. They were buying everything. So I was a TA for a couple of different classes in undergrad. And one of my one of my professors was the director of research at the Dallas Fed. So I loved studying economics. I loved really the intersection of financial markets and economic policy. And there's really no better place to go than to follow a mentor and someone that I appreciated greatly who would give me a job in 2008, 2009. And it just seemed like a great place to go kind of inside the temple, learn the secrets of the U.S. Central Bank. I thought it was two years, kind of pivot back to finance. Again, finance nerd had grown up in a family that really our family business was an investment firm. And so I thought this was just a great education, which I always encourage people go where there's the most learning possible. And I was learning a ton at the Dallas Fed. I ended up staying six years, was chief of staff to Richard Fisher, the bank president, and really just Richard Fisher and my mentor that brought me to the Dallas Fed, Harvey Rosenblum, the director of research. They were just really, really great mentors in uh, in all things economic policy and monetary policy. And so my nerdiness for, uh, for macro, it's kind of, you can take the man out of macro. I'm no longer a pseudo scientist of, of economics, but you can never take the macro of the man. So I'm happy to chat macro anytime. I love it. So maybe for us lay people here, just define macroeconomics for us. What are the the key themes that you're following? How would you how would you apply it to the layperson here? Sure. Well, I think what's interesting over the last decade and a half, really since I started at the Fed, kind of everything has been macro for market participants across various capital markets, various financial markets. So it's it's trying to understand. I mean, I, I think at a high level, you mentioned having to take those classes. You take both macroeconomics and microeconomics. It's really, it's really these studies in economics that help you try to understand how rational consumers work, how businesses work, how decision-making occurs. And it's trying to come up with various economic theories to explain how the world works. So macroeconomics pretends portends more to the economy's growth and stability and various factors that uh, and kind of roll up the microeconomics of all the regions and how it makes a whole for for a larger kind of large scale or general economic forces for the country. So everyone talks macro. They might not realize that they're they're using the uh, the the factors of supply and demand to explain something and how the world works. So we all have our macroeconomic theory how we approach the world. We just might not attribute it to to the folks we learned about in undergrad. So David, when you when you work at the Fed, every night when you go home, do you just take the old bills with you? Or is there just like a how does that work? Man, I 
I, I'd like to say I tried, but the friends in law enforcement were just yeah. too good and too kind to me to let me make that mistake. <laughs> we actually joked there is a lot of currency unfit bills shredded and sent to money heaven every day at the Dallas Fed or any one of the 12 regional Fed banks. Just one of those pallets. They probably don't want me saying this, but there's been lots of movies made of stealing money from the Federal Reserve or I guess Die Hard is the New York Fed and gold bullion. And, yep. But one of the pallets that I would pass on a regular basis, if you stack those with hundreds, I think it was $40 million on the wow. pallet. Wow. <laughs> so you're always kind of looking over your shoulder like, you know, if that's unfit currency, I can, I, it's fit enough for me. I was going to say know, it's fit know. enough for me for sure. <laughs> when I was in high school, I actually had an internship at the Fed for one summer. I won an essay contest. And they would send us home with little baggies or fretted up $100 bills, could pass out to your friends. So that was the uh, the deal compensation there. Because putting that back together would be the grossest thing you've ever attempted. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> David, can you, can you talk a little bit about here in Texas? You know, everyone in the United States thinks of New York as kind of a, the financial capital of the United States. But can you talk about how here in Texas, you know, Dallas, Houston, to a lesser extent, Austin, you know, kind of have almost really in their own right become financial hubs, especially here in Dallas. You know, a lot of family offices in Houston with energy finance and just, you know, kind of a, a broad swath of, of finance, both in, in Houston and Dallas. Can you talk about that and help listeners understand how that how that's just become a big driver here of the state's economy? Sure. Happy to. Also, I'll start with one thing. Just again, it's the wonkiness. It's going to keep coming out. I love I love statistics. I love talking about kind of economic data. Houston is actually the most diverse city in the country. Dallas is fourth on that list. So in between Houston and Dallas, you might be surprised, but it's like it's like Jersey and New York <laughs> as, <laughs> as other really diverse places. Then you get LA, you get some other places, but there's there's a lot of diversity here of thought and industry that I think a lot of people kind of connote Texas with uh, with cowboys, oil and gas, maybe some hospital systems, but but you know SNL crisis that hit really hard here. So yeah, maybe there's some banking, there's some things going on, but it's really a diverse economy and a diverse set of cultures that come together in our state. So yes, New York is a great financial center. I've worked at other financial centers across the world, and I think Dallas Fort Worth is a very unique version of we'll say embracing something that I love about the idea of Texas is I call it cowboy capitalism. There's this entrepreneurial spirit. So sure, think of us as cowboys, but the men and women that work really hard with their entrepreneurial spirit in here, there is a there is a certain amount of risk taking. There is a certain gravitas in uh, just being willing. And that might be on oil and gas wildcatting. That might be on some of the, the state's history, but there's a there's a real can-do spirit in the air in Texas. So I think you combine that with how much uh, uh, just diverse industries in the service sector being as rich and really compelling as it is the the job growth here I can, I can probably touch on this later of like how I think Texas will come out of this impending recession strong but it's still going to affect us in Texas the way that it would elsewhere in the nation but we've just had really strong job growth for a while so even if this year you know payrolls are less impressive this year. The Dallas Fed, since I still like to look at this stuff, projected the 2.8% annual growth of payrolls for this year. That's a deceleration from the previous year, which was 4.7%, and then 2021, which was 6.1%. But 6%, almost 5%, now maybe 2%. In January, it was closer to 1.4%. So we've even doubled the forecast for job growth this year in just a couple of months, even while financial uncertainty is is quite heightened. There's just something really dynamic about the Texas economy. And in Dallas specifically, you mentioned kind of the family office scene, since that's what I'm a part of getting to lead a family office here in Dallas. There's a really neat collaborative culture of sharing notes and trying to make great stewardship and investment decisions, but having that can do willing to work hard cowboy capitalism spirit, which other places I've worked sharper elbows, not collaborative, much more competitive. And I think there is something special about the investment community here where we want to see other people win and not just not just our own families or our own firms win, which combine all those different ingredients. I think you have a pretty dynamic economy. 
I want to get back to Texas here in a little bit. Maybe we can zoom out to you know national or global scale. The past couple of years have been rife with macro shocks. I mean, we look at post-2008, we have the Fed with quantitative easing, driving interest rates down to zero. I remember three years ago, there were many folks who said interest rates will never go back above 1%. We're going to be in a permanent situation. Now, that's a red flag because nothing ever happens forever. But there was this belief that this is what would happen. Then COVID hits. We have supply chain challenges. We have increase in in government spending and inflation rockets up. And now recently we have Silicon Valley Bank that has some issues because of their interest rate and inability to navigate that. We also have impending, you mentioned it, recession potentially on the horizon yet. One of the weirdest run-ups to the recession I've ever seen where consumer spending is still high. I don't feel it in the air. Maybe it's just Dallas, but even traveling the rest of the country, I don't really feel it. So I'll just pose a very simple question to you, David. What's going on? <laughs> Uh, well, let's figure it out together. <laughs> so I think this is an extremely unusual economic cycle, essentially by design. So starting in the 90s, you had you had Greenspan doing something that was until then unprecedented. There were three times that he did cuts, one, two, three, three cuts, and then a pause. Then he did it again, then he did it again through the 90s. As a result, or you know, causation correlation, but corresponding to this idea of Greenspan trying to moderate cycles and ex- continue an expansion, the uh, the expansion, the economic expansion uh, in that time, basically between the '90 recession and the 2001 recession, that was the second largest or longest sustained economic expansion in the in the kind of modern economic era where we have data for these things, which we typically kind of grab data back 70 years. You can go back farther and farther, but the consistency, keeping methodology the same, anything I referenced tonight, probably easier to reference kind of within a 70-year period. That at kind of three cut and pause was a magic sauce of Greenspan. I think he started a new precedent. Bernanke, Yellen, Powell, they've they've tried these things now of you know what the if the second log, longest expansion was that Greenspan era, what the longest economic expansion was? That's right. <laughs> we just lived it. And really, the four recessions we've had since the early 80s, one was really bad, the financial crisis. The other three weren't that bad. COVID was the weirdest recession ever. Uh, and then prior to that, if you take, okay, that's the 40 years since the early 80s, we've had those four recessions. One of them was a financial crisis. The 40 years prior to that, you had eight recessions, most of them pretty bad. So it's just, we went from having normal economic cycles to well, let's just try to expand the expansion and really a lot of moderation on the inflation front. A lot of things that have been different over the last three, four decades from seeing just a bullish bond run since the early 80s where the cost of capital came way, way down and stayed way, way down and the availability of capital became quite abundant. So very long answer to say, well, what's going on? It's like, how long can you kick the can down the road? Let's focus on the last 15 years. Since the financial crisis did allow a reset of certain financial markets, there was a re-rating and a repricing on certain financial risk-taking and behavior. But really since 2010, we have had a very prolonged economic expansion that eventually you reap what you sow. And I think I think we're seeing the cracks of you have to have a, a real a real steep rate rise cycle, the, the third steepest in our that 70 year economic history that I'll reference. 1980 was a steep hike and we had double dip recession through there. So 8081 was was a tough rate rise cycle. Volcker wanted to break the back of inflation and 1973 was a really steep rate ride cycle. So this this raising rates environment, also starting points matter. So you go from zero to 5%, that hurts. Going from five to 10% still hurts, but it's different than going from zero to five. And honestly, at the end of last year, when we actually see the money supply like decreasing, like it's not just a, a lower rate of increasing the money supply, which has been a near constant since the creation of the Fed, since the Fed started controlling high-powered money in this country, the monetary base. Anytime we've actually seen money supply really taken out of the system, that can really produce some dire economic consequences. So why is that all having to happen? Well, because we've 
tried for a long time. And by we, I guess I would say the FOMC and various market participants that just wanted to see rates lower for longer and sustained as long as possible. And I guess I'm talking the book of what I used to talk about with Richard Fisher all the time at the Dallas Fed, that when I was his chief of staff, we were worried about too low for too long. And we were worried about that in 2010, 2011, 2013, 2015, and then he retired. And so we didn't get to keep talking about it. So I just I just think that we're we're reaping what what we sowed in the idea of there are there are economic forces that have to come home to roost. You can't essentially I mean, if if you want to you want to highlight, there is typically a decent script for economic cycles. So let's take the modern FOMC era. You, You have a dual mandate. So since 1977, the Federal Reserve Reform Act. The Humphrey Hawkins Act of 1978, there's been this dual mandate. A lot of central banks around the world have a single mandate. It's price stability. We have since 78, the FOMC has had a dual mandate. So that includes price Just stability. Just to find FOMC real quick for sure. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Federal Open Market Committee, also known as the, uh, the 19 brave men and women that set monetary policy for the country. So each uh, regional bank president, there's 12 of those. And then seven governors from the board of governors. So when all the seats are allocated and the room is full, it's 19 folks sitting at the big table and then their supporting staff around them. And they meet every six to eight weeks to discuss economic developments for the region, the nation, and the global scale. They do talk about how our policy is exported and how we import inflation or deflation from other areas. So Anyways, the the idea that this economic cycle recipe is there's too much stimulus, whether it's fiscal policy or monetary policy, there's then very high inflation. You then have aggressive central bank hikes. This has been very aggressive because of waiting so long. You then see an inverted yield curve, tighter lending standards and financial conditions and recession and round and round and round we go. Like that's that's the economic cycle. It's a pretty it's a pretty well-known script for how this stuff plays out. So what's happening? We're, we've had one of the steepest inverted yield curves on record. I think it was just March 6th that we had a 42-year you know, year record of how steeply inverted the yield curve was. We are starting to have tighter lending conditions, tar- starting to see a little bit of a banking crisis that erupted in the last couple of weeks, and we will see a recession. The economic cycle will, will roll over. How prolonged, how bad, my crystal ball is broken, but we can all we can all have fun pro- prognosticating on that, I guess. So when you say inverted yield curve, you just define what that means and why that's important. Sure. Yeah, the Fed funds rate. So what the FOMC actually targets is the rate that banks actually charge each other for overnight loans. There's a different rate that's the discount rate where people can actually go to the Fed, which we've actually seen accessed here in the last month <laughs> in a way that most people wouldn't know what the discount window is. But banks can borrow from the Fed for a different rate. But the Fed funds rate is really what banks charge each other for overnight loans. It most directly affects the shortest term treasury maturities. And so prices and the yields of longer term maturities are often much more reflective of investors' long term expectations for economic performance. So normally you have short rates on the short end and longer rates on the long end because people expect that the economy is is growing. So when that's not the case, so in the case of like a Fed right rate hike cycle, you know, short-term yields can rise much quicker than the longer ones. So bonds are priced where investor expectations for slowing economic growth are then re- resulting in lower rates on the long end of the curve, yet the rate hikes have start on the Fed funds rate and on the short end of the curve. So when that inverts, which most recently the yield curve inverted last July, that means the Treasury term structure really, you know, start started to flatten out. There was a March FOMC meeting last year with the initial hike. In June, there was a 75 basis point hike. So 0.75%. That's that's actually a pretty big rate hike in a single month. And so after kind of flattening after that June 2022 meeting, uh, the yield curve went officially inverted, you know, a few weeks later in July. And so really since then, uh, and again, in kind of that 70-year <laughs> data set of, of hikes, you know, the curve usually flattens around, you know, 12 months kind of after a first hike. And so 
you you expect a steepening and then you expect like a a, a reorientation of the curve coming back. And what's interesting here is like, well, if we're already nine, 10 months into uh, this hiking cycle from the inverted yield curve of last of last July, you know, are we seeing this thing get any less steeper? Are we seeing, you know, recession on the on the horizon here? Or is the yield curve a little bit more jacked up <laughs> than usual because of artificially low interest rates for a really long period of time? So there is a lot of questioning around how reliable of a of a recessionary sing signal the inverted yield curve really is. There's a little bit of a joke in the economist and nerd community of, well, it's successfully predicted 12 of the last nine recessions. So why wouldn't you love that? But it's, but it is, it is a really good indication. I think uh, that you, you have people expecting the economy to roll over near term. We can talk about other aspects besides a inverted yield curve, but it's not a good sign when investors are going to be paid a lot less for long dated treasury yields. Uh, you know, long dated treasury bonds for uh, compared to just what banks charge each other overnight for their loans. So it is always a good indication of some level of stress and it often portends to recession. David, I wish you hadn't said that your crystal ball is broken because I was going to ask you to take your crystal ball out and, <laughs> and help us understand what you think the Fed's going to do next. Because I think in my lifetime, I've never seen economic forecasts tied so tightly to what the fed does than i think here over the past just call it year and a half you know year year and a half or so you know i think you mentioned you know the early 80s with paul volcker and you know breaking the back of inflation and then you know you look at you know just inflation today which is you know generationally high and stubbornly high right we just had a march cpi print that was what six percent Help help us understand in terms of what you think the Fed would would like to do in the face of of stubbornly high inflation versus, you know, the the old saying of, you know, the Fed raises rates until something breaks. And then you've got, you know, the Silicon Valley banking issues, which which almost kind of potentially had a contagion effect across the entire banking industry, which I don't think anybody really saw coming. And you saw the Fed, you know, add, you know, a couple hundred billion dollars to its balance sheet, really kind of wiping out the success of the past couple of months of, of quantitative tightening. Right. And so everyone is is convinced. I think the best way I would describe it is no matter what you think the Fed's going to do. Right. You know, it's often and wrong, often wrong, but never in doubt. Right. Of what the Fed's <laughs> going to do next. And so do you think the Fed moving forward main, you know, just coming off a 25 bit hike do you think they pause do you think chairman powell is is convinced that he's got to do something about inflation and continues to to hike rates what do you think happens well macro timing is a fool's errand i try not to be a fool but i have learned firsthand from building charts and working on economic data analysis and writing speeches and just enjoying the time at the at the Dallas Fed that it is it is worth going hard to the paint and wonking out hard. I guess going hard to the paint is a uh, conclusion of March Madness reference. Uh, basketball on the mind tonight. It's uh, but I think wonking out on monetary policy. Uh, it's it's certainly certainly been a wild month just to see the idea of well, could we reach six percent in that Fed funds target rate? I mean, five weeks ago, I think. The uh, the pricing, Fed funds pricing of how market participants were laying out the futures curve on this, it's changed so drastically since the Silicon Valley bank failure and all the ripples through the banking system right now that, yeah, the 25 bit hike came as a surprise to a lot of people. They thought that maybe the Fed was going to pause already. Unfortunately, you know, inflation is still high, as you just pointed out, and unemployment is still quite low. So the Fed can't declare victory for its dual mandate, but now it's seeing some systemic risk in the financial system. So if I had to guess, uh, since we don't have an active trading desk at our family office anymore, I guess I don't get to put my money where my mouth is on this, but I would guess that the Fed has done its last hike and will pause. And then market participants are actually expecting the Fed to head the other way starting as soon as this summer <laughs> and cut 100 basis points by year end, I think was the last time I checked Fed pricing. Wow. So 
it's kind of there's probably a parody video that could be made kind of uh kind of like monty python style of like charging in and taking the hill of rising rates and then run away run away <laughs> because uh that that would be pretty unprecedented i would guess it is wise for the fomc to pause and try to see what their current rate hikes you know of four percent in less than a year being four and a half percent in less than a year being something that they can see actually translate into the real economy and see whether they've maybe actually done enough for the time being for inflation to be cooling um, and for unemployment to start to tick up because you know you know what <laughs> helps unemployment go up unfortunately is a lot of panic in our banking system and a lot of people starting to now question well maybe maybe I should slow down hiring maybe I shouldn't do you know insert the blank whether you're a consumer business owner an employee trying to make a decision of do I turn left or turn right in our business so uncertainty uncertainty is a really good break to economic activity and and we've had uncertainty in spades here recently I mean it seems like the Fed in the past 20 30 years is really control the economy is not the right term because it's not but like strike a very fine balancing act of minimizing the downfalls and preventing pure exuberance to to quote greenspan as you mentioned previously do they do a good job because you see that the the right loves to throw spears at the fed you know the left wants it to be more activist sometimes to drive certain policy outcomes they have a really unique role in our society and they have to be measured and there's a lot of risk with it but on balance I guess one can make the argument they have softened some blows, but like, how do you view the Fed overall? Like, what is what should their role be, and are they doing an effective job at whatever their role should be? See, Ben, now you're going to get me in trouble with former colleagues, but I, uh, I, I like an analogy that Richard used in a couple of speeches. So I'll reference my former boss when he said that central banking should be like dentistry. You shouldn't want to go to the dentist. You don't want a creative dentist. You don't want a dentist in there with a high interventionist policy of let's pull this tooth and maybe this one and maybe this one. And why don't you just sit in the chair with this laughing gas and you can just sit here. We'll just keep pumping that. You don't even have to maintain your teeth yourself. In fact, just sit in the chair and I'll just clean them for you. Can you imagine if that's how we approach dentistry? <laughs> but it's kind of how we've approached central banking for a couple of years. <laughs> So I'm a believer in creative destruction and Joseph Schumpeter style. Like there are booms and there are busts. There's euphoria. There's, there's panic. And the Fed's job is to moderate those cycles, but it's not to eliminate the cycles from turning over. So, you know, that magic from Ben Bernanke of three cuts and pause, it, it started a less rules based, more discretionary kind of approach to policymaking. I like, you know, Ben, you met out at Stanford. I like John Taylor and his approach with, with policy rules. I think it's fine for there to be some level of discretion, but when your central banker is not acting like your typical dentist, I think you start to have problems. So this may be, David, this may be a, a really wonky question, but I have seen it covered, frankly, more here in the past couple of weeks than, than I have really ever before. You know, uh, Xi Jinping went to Moscow here you know, a month ago or so, and now you're starting to see, you know, both the Saudis as well as I believe Brazil starting to do transactions that, that aren't dollar denominated. Can you help our listeners understand, you know, people talk about the dollars, the world reserve currency. What does that mean? Is it really that important? And if and if we lose that status, you know, what are some of the potential implications for for the economy as a whole? That's a great question. There's a lot of people much more qualified to answer that question than me, but I'll I'll take a better shot at it than someone typing it into chat GPT. But the idea that the US dollar is is the reserve currency and and that might not last is an actual real scary prospect uh, for the U.S. economy. De-dollarization would really change the inflation picture. So 
to talk about so the idea that the primary reserve currency around the world so what other central banks what other governments hold is us dollars when it comes to stability so when they want something that is is it's kind of like when you hand someone a dollar and it's worth a dollar that that's what it means to be the world's reserve currency if at some point you hand someone a, a brick county there's another country that you're going to point to and we start start putting oil contracts in the chinese yuan if we start really instead of dollar denominating things that are global trading assets that we've enjoyed being the global reserve currency our central bank has to take a different approach to policy because currently our our interest rates are exported around the world where our dollar is used there's there's a lot of there's a lot of of consequences of the US dollar really losing its reserve status. Uh, I don't I don't think going back to some sort of gold standard, I don't I don't think there's real good chance to put toothpaste back in the tube by going back to try to figure out well what's a way to stabilize if fiat currency and how the FOMC has approached policy and how this country is maybe no longer as strong of a global leader as it has been in previous decades. There's more competition for what people would rather own when it comes to a flight to safety, a flight to quality, and what they can count on their contracts trading without significant devaluation. If if that's not the U.S. dollar, which other currency, what other country would be standing behind that? If it's not a Bretton Woods system of the gold standard, it still doesn't feel imminent. I don't see another country that steps in that when you look at a dollar bill and it says, you know, in full faith of the of the U.S. Federal Reserve, the idea it says in God we trust and it says that this is a liability of the Fed. So the way that you think of a demand deposit, which we've just seen when you show up and ask for your deposit back from a bank, it is a demand deposit. They're supposed to be able to produce it when you withdraw it. That That's what our, these are Federal Reserve notes. These are liability of the Federal Reserve. Would you like a liability of fill in the blank, whatever other country leader or central bank, fiscal policymaker, legislators of those other countries being able to make whole on that on that promise of that currency. So we're not there yet, uh, but we're not heading a good direction to continue to earn the right to be the world's reserve currency if we're not if we're not, you know, essentially thinking about our dollar um, as a way that it is it is worth it's kind of how much do you want to get into talking about inflation? Because if you want to look back and look at what a dollar was worth in 1970 or take Bretton Woods and take the exact point of like that tough recession I mentioned of rate hike of 1973, like that, that was brutal because it was really in the wake of Bretton Woods and the breaking of the, of the gold standard. So, uh, you know, I think for a while, Japan, so I have a roll back. We're all probably younger than this, but you kind of wonder. So the, Japanese yen had a really growing share of global foreign currency reserves like in the 1980s. And so I remember hearing stories from my dad when I was young. Again, the third grade science project, right? I had different childhood stories than a lot of people. But Japan was becoming the new world power in the 1980s because we were fighting with Russia and it was just it was opportune time the most productive country in in the world and demographic reasons and we don't have to get into three lost decades for Japan but they clearly did not uh they did not take the the hill of becoming the world's reserve currency i i think global foreign reserves for japanese yen it might have reached like 9% in 1991 and it's since declined to below 3% so It'd be interesting to pull up a chart, to be honest, Jeff, to see where some of these other currencies are in the grand scheme of what's the composition of of reserves across the world. Fortunately, the U.S. dollar is going to be the incredible majority across across reserves. It's what banks around the world, governments around the world are going to hold as their reserves. But we're not doing a great job of continuing to earn that that right and that honor of having a dollar be worth a dollar be worth a dollar.
With that in mind, I know Web3 and crypto has kind of gone away from a consciousness, although Bitcoin is back above 25,000. What role do you see for either cryptocurrencies as standalone entities or this move towards central bank driven cryptocurrencies having as it pertains to the dollar? Like, what are these to stay? Is it still just a trend? And how will this impact kind of the, the home front here? Yeah, that's interesting. I'm really out of touch on that topic. I'll share a quick anecdote, though, that might surprise a lot of listeners. In 2011, uh, we at the Dallas Fed, which every regional bank kind of has their own flavor of things that they care a lot about and their research might have a little bit more of a bent towards. They want to have an expertise in that. Dallas Fed has a really great regional team and they have a globalization Institute. And so they're really good about studying globalization and all the various factors there, which is now kind of an interesting conversation. And then there was a regional team that was honestly just super dialed in from a standpoint of understanding how dynamic the Texas economy really had become because the 11th Federal Reserve District was really mostly one state, Texas, mostly you know, Fed banks for the 12 Federal Reserve regions. Those 12 Fed banks don't typically just cover one state. So anyways, on so 2011, we had we had a a group actually from Stanford, and I won't name names, but there was a uh, there were two folks coming to the Dallas Fed to talk about this this nascent thing called Bitcoin. Um, they wanted to talk to the Fed about how this cryptocurrency could eventually replace the need for monetary policy and fiat currency. And all I can say is, while it was a very interesting meeting, power is something that is not easily given up. And the idea that the FOMC would be willing to lose control of the monetary base and its ability to control the money supply by having competition <laughs> with various cryptocurrencies is something that I find unlikely to be something that would happen without, without a really big fight. I think one of the most important things that, not altruistic, but it's important to note that really we want the rails of our monetary policy system to connect. So like the idea of agreeing when the East met the West and we had actual physical railroads, you had to agree on the gauge of how these rails were actually built so that when they connected, you actually had a system that worked. I would liken our, our kind of monetary system to that and that you have to agree on the gauge. The reason that the Fed exists as a banker's bank and there's payment processing. And, you know, I worked with 50 individuals at the Dallas Fed that were economists and a part of the monetary policy team. But the other close to 1,200 people within the Dallas Fed were doing a lot of other jobs that had to do with the Dallas Fed being the banker's bank for people in Texas and a little bit in Louisiana, a little bit in New Mexico. But 95, 96% of the output and employment of the 11th Fed District is Texas. And so there's there are a lot of people doing banker's bank work where it's really the importance of having that folding currency in your banks, having payments processed on time. We've all probably used the Fed wire system to send wires between parties that need to send and receive cash. So there's a lot of aspects of our financial system that the Fed touches kind of behind the scenes that they're, they're an institution that's 110 years old uh, this year. Happy birthday. And it's, <laughs> uh, it's not something that would easily be replaced. So, David, can you kind of help? How, how should we think about this? How should our listeners think about this? Because I think the challenge I have with what you were talking about earlier that, you know, you get a, a steepening yield curve, or excuse me, inverted yield curve. And, you know, you start to see unemployment rise and, you know, that that lasts for a prolonged period of time before things ultimately recover. I think the challenge that that I have in thinking about what a potential recession looks like, I mean, first of all, is can you help us understand what a recession is? Because, you know, I, I used to understand a recession used to be formulaic and two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. And then lo and behold, that happened in 2022. And everybody said, no, 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 that's not it anymore. And I'm like, OK, well, what? What is a recession now, right? So I think that's that's the first problem. And then, you know, the second problem is it's really the first time demographically in the post-war period here in America where, again, kind of Q3, Q4 last year, the bulk 
our overwhelming majority of baby boomers have now retired and are out of the workforce. And so we see kind of this structural deficit in the labor market of people are constantly looking for for people to fill jobs. You know, last number I saw was 10 or 11 million more openings than actual people to fill them in the United in, in the United States. And so, you know, unemployment rate, what last last month was, you know, 3.5, 3.6%. I mean, hell, unemployment could, you know, double and still be below where we were with the great financial crisis in 2008. So how how should we think about what a, I guess, how should we think about, you know, a tight labor market and its implications for a recession or, you know, whatever that looks like moving forward? Yeah, that's, that's really interesting, Jeff. Good, good points taken. Uh, literally the National Bureau of Economic Research that dates business cycles went from a definition that I knew well, the definition we used at the Fed, a definition that you referenced of being two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth to now, and I'll see if I can remember it or I might butcher it, but a significant decline in economic activity that's spread across the economy and lasts for more than a few months. So it's not two quarters anymore. It's not not two quarters anymore. It's basically widespread decline in economic activity that lasts for more than a few months. Uh, so the variables that that committee tracks include, you know, real personal income, typically minus government transfers, employment, you know, bunch of different forms of consumer spending, industrial production. Like they're trying the, the MBER business cycle dating committee. That's a, that's a mouthful. Don't try to get an acronym out of that. You know, there's no fixed rules or thresholds or triggers to determine a recession. So the the real funny thing about ever answering a like, are we there yet? Or what is a recession? Are we in a recession? It's that the uh, the MBER committee really does rely on government statistics that are reported with a lot of various lags. So it really cannot officially designate a recession until after it starts, like by definition. <laughs> it's so it's a it's a challenging I mean, insert joke about good enough for government work, right? But it's 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 challenging to know when a recession really begins and ends uh, from like a real time market participants perspective. But what when whether we're experiencing like a real down economic cycle or expansion, I do think can be felt in Main Street businesses across the country and here in our great state of Texas, which Ben started out kind of saying, you know, I don't I don't feel it yet. Is that here in Dallas? So. You asked that question of like, well, what is a recession? And I think there's some interesting points of like, well, are we there yet? I won't bury the lead to say, you know, I actually don't think we're quite there yet, but I think we will be soon. And we could talk a little bit more about that, depending on how much you guys want to get more into the dismal science. But your other question was was a really a really good one on is there just this kind of structural level of employment there's essentially frictional and structural unemployment that make up a natural rate of unemployment that the fed is trying to hit because if it's just those forms of people without jobs then there's no cyclical unemployment the stuff that they maybe can try to affect with their policy although there's debates about whether full employment is a good mandate for the fed versus price stability but there, there's a very, there's a very drastic demographic shift that has occurred post COVID of the boomers not returning to the workforce. So I think tight job markets actually make inflation stickier. It's harder to cool inflation. There's some called the Phillips curve and that relationship broke down for a while. And Jay Powell even said, well, we have control over inflation now. And so Phillips curve isn't as helpful as it has been. And now all of a sudden the Phillips curve is helpful again because it's like we have very low unemployment and very high inflation and that relationship appears to be strengthened and maybe that's the fed not having control of inflation and so now the phillips curve is a more is a more is a more pertinent indicator but the departure of boomers really does mean that gen x millennial gen z these these generations are now in the driver's seat and i do think that has implications of like how we invest i think that has implications with how how the Fed is going to be able to to cool inflation and achieve full employment when in reality there's there's swirling understanding of like well how much structural unemployment is there what should a labor force participation rate be 
a bunch of other a bunch of other terms I could throw out there and really try to confuse a lot of people. So I'll I'll stop just to say I think the Fed can't really declare victory yet. It's hard. It's hard for the FOMC to think about cutting. They might have to. Again, I think they'll pause. I think we'll see recession in the back half of this year. But the Fed is further away from hitting its mandate than it has been in 40 years. So if you actually measure back to the early 80s, basically the difference between what you could say is like unemployment and that like Nehru, the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, there's this Fed misery index from uh, from Matt at Deutsche Bank that shows basically inflation being far away from target and employment being away from target. Just like take those gaps and chart them for the last you know 70 years. And again, you have to go back to the early 80s when Volcker went ahead and said, well, inflation's high as anything, but now we're in a double dip recession. So I have to cut rates anyway. It's like you have to go back a long, long way to realize that the Fed is really far away from achieving its mandates. So again, 1980s, 1973, those all are starting to like feel and sound familiar. Uh, but we're also in a digital age that we've probably over-indexed investing in like the digital economy, under-invested in certain things that I think now we've seen supply chains go nuts, where there's been all sorts of pinches where we probably under-invested in some of the less sexy things, but we needed to invest in actual infrastructure. And there's several fiscal policy initiatives. There have been three bills passed in the last you know year and a half that really can move the needle on some different infrastructure spending, some different things that could support, I think, investing in the real economy in a way that people kind of gave up on the real economy, invested in the digital economy. And I think there'll be some 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 return to some fundamentals of like same risk we've been taking as private equity investors, family office investors for the last 10 years. And now we'll maybe just get paid for it. We didn't chase a lot of those same things that we chased, um, that a lot of people chase seeking return. And now those will probably be in vogue again. So I know you asked a long question of defining, interesting question about defining a recession and what does it mean for employment? I, I, I think those are good questions. I think there's a reason that the FOMC feels like they're in a real pickle. But the things that matter is a recession is when people on Main Street really feel the hurt. So these are not things to take lightly. This isn't just someone sitting on a podcast or in an ivory tower somewhere as an economist dropping pearls of wisdom of, well, this is going to happen here and this is what we're going to do about it. There's really hard working men and women that go to work day in, day out, provide for their family, and they'll be out of jobs. So to see the unemployment rate go up as it is going to go up, it's it's not just a number on a page. It's not just a stat. And it's something that I think I think here in Texas, it's like that's again where some of that collaborative nature, some of that cowboy capitalism. It's why I think this state, even though we'll be dragged into recession like the rest of the country, will emerge from it even better because this place believes in community. This place believes in collaboration, hard work. And I think we come out stronger together. But it's it's going to be a bumpy ride is is my is my perspective. Dave, you talked a lot about monetary policy, and it makes sense given any of your background. And obviously, the Fed is front of mind for people. I can remember 20 years ago when presidential candidates would get on stage and talk about the deficit and the debt. And the past 10 years, it seems like that's gone out the window completely. You know, the the debt deficit or the debt is now 30, 35, who knows, maybe $40 trillion. Deficits are at least 25 to 33% of of receipts with the outflows above that. But it doesn't get play. Republican, Democrat, there's a lot of, hey, does it even matter? So I guess the question to you is, do, do debts matter? Um, it feels like it's, it's fallen off the public consciousness right now. And how should we think about the dollars that we take in tax-wise vice the amount of spending that our government, both state, I guess state is more balanced, but I think at the federal level has and why no one seems to really care about it anymore. Yeah, I mean the fact that I think I remember reading January when the when the 2022 deficit of 1.4 trillion was announced. It's like, well, it's down from 2.6 trillion the year before. It's like these these are not good numbers, and so we're celebrating something that's gone from outrageous to <laughs> truly egregious. So it's it's just I think deficits matter, but 
part of that reserve currency, like one of the things when I mentioned, like we get away with a lot. Um, these are the types of things that I don't, I don't think, um, you know, here's, here's a, here's a throwback of, you know, again, I like to, I like to talk about, uh, about monetary policy because I'm much more comfortable with it. I remember going to Mexico on multiple trips with Richard Fisher and Richard would commend fiscal policymakers and monetary policymakers in Mexico, which you know might be a hot take if I stop the sentence there. But what he would say is like, you guys have a balanced budget amendment. So you guys actually have to figure out and agree and be responsible adults with what you do with tax, taxpayer dollars in this country. And you know, whether whether the taxing authority in, in Mexico is used as teeth to get what they want, like there's a whole nother podcast. And I think you talked to Ambassador Garza, <laughs> who knows a lot more about uh, about the US and Texas and Mexico dynamic. But I just don't think it's responsible. Like you're you're selling your children or your children's ch- children downriver with the idea that you would just continue. And I say you, the proverbial collective you of us as Americans, it's just, it's, it's something that I, I hope, you know, myself, the two of you on this podcast listeners, they will realize that the people we put in office are making these decisions. It, it take it takes a while turning a big ship you know, it takes a long time. Ben, you've you've been on na- naval uh, air carriers, so you you know the analogy well. But man, the idea that it's honestly the danger that comes with if you have really loose monetary policy for a long time and really high debt loads and deficits in other countries. Do you know what we've called that over economic history? It's called monetizing the debt. So inflation can be good for our debt. And so does the Fed then not inflate, doesn't inflate or doesn't fight inflation in the same way? Because no, that's not what the FOMC talks about. And I can tell you it's not what the FOMC talks about, but there are the intended consequences of policy and the unintended consequences of policy. And I, I think we have a very weird situation between the unintended consequences, both of our fiscal policy makers and legislators acting like they don't have to pay a bill <laughs> at the end of this whole thing. And then monetary policymakers acting like the job of price stability and full employment is one that they uh, should just keep throwing money at, even if the efficacy of that policy is, is dubious at this point. So there's a lot more to discuss in that regard, Ben. You, uh, you Ben and Jeff, you've stirred me up on that, but I, uh, I do... I do think that this is this is one of the things that the listeners of this podcast, a lot of people much smarter than me on the topic, should be passionately considering, prayerfully considering, you know, what it means to be putting people in office that ultimately are making decisions that are downright financially irresponsible. Yeah. If you localize this to, you know, your school board or your church budget meeting or pick your institution in civil society. You would not recommend how the U.S. government handles its own house of affairs. Yeah, amen to that. And, you know, similar question kind of tacking on to what, what Ben just asked. This is more certainly don't mean for it to be a political question, but more ph- philosophical question. You know, Ben asked and and I would definitely agree. It seems like nobody in Washington gives a damn about about the debt anymore. You know, every, you know, 1% rise in rates, you know, we've got a new, you know, we'll call it what, 300, $310 billion in incremental debt service that we got to come up with. And somebody do the opportunity cost of spending that for debt service versus on education or defense or, tra- you know what I mean? And so, but I guess my question would be, we saw this with Silicon Valley, that kind of debacle that happened here a few weeks ago. And the Fed basically stepped in and said, don't worry, listen, we're we're the backstop. Right. And I guess philosophically, my question is, when that happened, you certainly want, you know, depositors to to feel secure with, you know, and that's, you know, there's the FDIC and, and other safeguards built in. But when when the Fed basically came out and, and said that they were kind of the, the ultimate backstop, does it feel almost like nobody fails anymore? Right. Does, does it feel almost kind of we are permanently taking away the downside? Almost, maybe I'm I'm reading too much into that, but that that's kind mm-hmm. of the the take that I got when the, when the Fed came out and announced. And I certainly know if that, you know, a lot of people there. I don't want to put you in a pickle, but just philosophically, it almost felt wrong in my opinion. Yeah, 
Well, we we did discuss a lot when I was inside the Temple of Doom, this uh, this concept of moral hazard. So any form of insurance, any form of backstop has this idea of moral hazard. And that's essentially that someone that takes a risk wouldn't bear the full consequence of that risk. So the Fed stepped in last month and, and kind of did two things. And in their mind, I think they tried to staunch contagion because really there's a bunch of unrealized losses across security and loan portfolios that you could have a lot of liquidity issues become solvency issues in a pretty short amount of time if there really is deposit flight like we saw on the three banks that failed. Each one has a little bit different story, but I won't I won't rehash all the all the different takings of that. That's uh the put and takes of that are uh it's a podcast in its own. But so really the the Fed stepped in with Silicon Valley Bank. They didn't want to see this kind of contagion spread to other depository institutions. We we literally watched and if you guys were on a Slack or WhatsApp channel the way that Ben and I were with business school classmates, it's uh it was wild to watch it progress of like the first hour there's rumblings like by hour six you know there's blood in the streets and people are just all withdrawing their cash and something that is different than lining up and you know it's a wonderful life on a, an old school bank run is now we do this instantaneously from our phones you know it can take 15 seconds to contribute to the spiral of a bank run in the in the modern era so first you know the fed teamed up with the Treasury and the FDIC, they announced that all the depositors of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank would be made whole. So they used a systemic risk exception, which these are not systemically important financial institutions. And so, you know, that that literally took an act of the president, but they wanted to protect all uninsured depositors. And so that was the recommendation by the FDIC and the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Secretary and the president. Second, they created an, a new facility, which is kind of new, it's kind of old, but details of that, it's it's really this bank term funding program that if if this program had actually been set up March 7th or sooner, <laughs> Silicon Valley Bank, I actually don't think would have failed because what, what this bank term funding program is, is it provides funding you know, with recourse for up to one year kind of securities like good government securities so you have treasuries agencies the the various agency mortgage-backed securities so everything that's kind of you have up to a year to use these securities as collateral that you then get to borrow from the fed so it's not a discount window it's it's this entirely new you know funding mechanism that allows basically $25 billion of credit protection backstopping that from the FDIC. They were The terms are so generous to be taking these things at par, not a discount like the discount window, not a lender of last resort, the way that the Fed is typically looked to as this lender of last resort. This was like a come to us first. We'll be your lender of first resort. So all that to lay out, that that's what they did. Your question is, is that a good thing? It stopped a bunch of other banks from seeing runs. It did still wipe out the shareholders of those banks. So it wasn't a bailout in that traditional sense, but it's not a good precedent. So I think the moral hazard, and honestly, I probably shouldn't comment, but it, it was tough when, when Yellen came out and basically said, well, there's these banks, they were deemed systemically important. So there's anything in this realm that's too big to fail, but everything else is too small to save. And then there's panic. <laughs> so then days later, I guess she got some media training. She came back out and she's like, no, 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 we would Let's take do further this again. Steps. <laughs> yeah, we would take further steps. Uh, so I think regional banks still face a degree of skepticism. Like there's still a lot. It's not it's not the blood in the streets. People are no longer trying to figure out exactly how many uninsured deposits are hanging out at their at their bank. But the deposit outflows were serious. The FDIC, the Fed, Treasury Secretary, and the President were trying to figure out how to stem panic that could have, I think a report I saw suggested that there, there could have been several hundred bank failures if there was actually a run, given that there's, there's a fair amount of underexposure in a fractional reserve system. I mean, the Fed can try to provide a backstop and, and and be a lender of lesser resort. But in a fractional reserve system, these banks don't have enough 
deposits on demand to meet you know a bank run of everyone lining up so you ask you ask a good question you saw that first republic had different approach to trying to stem that bank i typically prefer you know even if it's 30 billion dollars from 11 friends <laughs> good friends to have uh, then i like i need to get different based. friends yeah, exactly <laughs> i i jeff we don't know each other that well but i probably wouldn't be there for you in that way so yeah. <laughs> i am sorry that we're not there yet but yeah i i think you know jamie diamond i ironically is now kind of he's leading the talks on on all the stabilization efforts the last couple of weeks and it, it's the patriarch of jp morgan chase mr chase that established the need literally for the Fed and for FDIC deposit insurance. So because he was the lender of last resort <laughs> through the initial crises. So that's actually why the Fed came about in 1913 was Mr. Uh, Mr. Morgan basically said, I don't want to be <laughs> the, the lender of last resort. We can't do this next time. So how about we actually have a discount window? And so from the very beginning, that discount window that was accessed last month in ways that most people probably didn't know what the discount window was, that's been around since the very origination of the Fed. That was kind of the initial idea is people being able to come. It used to be a physical window and they used to be able to do a version of what you know the Fed came up with with this bank term funding program, but it wasn't it wasn't bringing forward these the these securities and getting paid essentially borrowing for them getting credit for them like at par it wasn't like full value it it was literally a discount so anyways i i i i know what you're asking i think it was very good in some aspects i think there are other ways to try to handle uh panics in a way that then doesn't further promote an adverse feedback loop of bad risk-taking behavior, poor management. You know, I don't know the people that ran Silicon Valley Bank, so I don't want to throw stones. It appears to have been a very mismanaged situation. But I, I think that that is part of what the modern day central bank of the Fed has taken on is they have some financial stability, you know, third secret mandate hanging out there that's leading to different action. Then honestly, if we were just focused on price stability, I think our central bank would be more dialed into things that just affect the prices of goods and services in this country. But as a result, you have a pretty interventionist central bank. Well, I hate to do this. We are coming near the end of our conversation and barely got into Texas. Maybe we'll have you on in the future. We can do a deep dive on Texas macro. But I do wanna ask one more question. David, you've mentioned a couple of times potential impending recession. I guess what are the two or three things you'll be looking for in the next three to six months that will help further refine your understanding of what's happening in the world? Yeah, thanks, Ben. It's been it's been fun hanging out with y'all. I think there are a number of leading economic indicators that are good to look to. So that gives you a little bit of a head up, heads up. There's a lot that you can look look at that's kind of driving by looking in the rear view mirror, which which is a little scary. I don't I don't recommend any of the listeners do that. If you're listening to this in the car, please look through the windshield. But some of the things that I will be trying to look through the windshield on, there is a pretty interesting, just kind of simple ISM, the Institute Supply Management, new orders. And so actually for the for the state. There's a survey out of the Dallas Fed, Texas Manufacturing Outlook Survey that has a measure of new orders. So that's good to look at at a state level, uh, as well as, you know, kind of the ISM of new orders for manufacturers of so factory activity around the country. So manufacturing activity is not a huge actual percentage of our GDP, but it is a, it is a very important indicator in terms of like how's factory activity going and how are new orders coming in it tends to roll over. Uh, early. And so a little bit of a teaser, Ben, but unfortunately the TMOS new orders has been a negative territory for that survey for the last 10 months. So that tends to be a little bit of a, a forecast of things rolling over. Ben, both of our wives are incredible realtors in, uh, in the DFW area. So I, I think it's hard to ignore and we would of course be unwise to ignore our incredible wives. And so they have a pulse on the regional economy in a way that uh, will always outperform my economic data in the alchemy I try to uh, 
to produce here here at our family office by looking at economic data but you know looking at building permits understanding what's going on within private housing understanding the construction oddly enough i think both of our wives have seen kind of some some stutter steps of like hot cold hot cold and so this region in particular seems to be uh be strong on that front, but kind of a two-step of sorts, uh, a couple of steps forward and one step back. Uh, I will, I will end with just kind of saying one of the things that uh, that I think I look for in terms of like what's core to how I like to spend time, talent, and treasure with with my team. And one of the things that I'm going to be looking for is is really just within our portfolio companies and within the teams that we support. I think it's a really great opportunity to just be just be close, just be on speed dial, just be aware. It's one of the things that harkening back to the time of the Dallas Fed, Richard Fisher really set a precedent that's still followed today for FOMC members of having an actual Rolodex. His was 50 or 60 incredible men or women leading, you know, real businesses in our region where he would just call them up before FOMC meetings, get as many of them as they could, as he could, and really get the state of affairs for those you know, main street businesses. It's kind of hard to believe that that wasn't a common practice for policymakers before, you know, Richard was there 2005 to 2015. And so I have a version of that, that I'm grateful for his mentorship and just how important it is to know what the people doing the real work in the trenches are doing in the businesses that we invest in and just trying to be uh, really, really kind of apprised of the, of the flock that we shepherd. And so what I'll be paying most attention to is just what I hear from portfolio teams and portfolio company CEOs so that we can be positioned to critically think and help solve problems and link arms and move forward through this economic cycle and into the many, many years, Lord willing of uh, what's ahead to continue to innovate, continue to add jobs, continue to to move forward as a community that wants to see more of the products and services and kind of the the human flourishing that we uh, that we want to promote and see more of in the world. So that's the vision for us and I'm sure you two and all the listeners have their version of despite whatever uh whatever the economy may hold there's uh there's ways that we can uh, get up in the morning and be be excited to move forward with uh, with what the Lord would have for us. Yeah, yeah, Amen to that. Well, listen, David, thanks so much for for taking the time out of your schedule to, to join us. Incredibly thoughtful conversation, and I know will be. I know listeners undoubtedly learned a lot, and more importantly, I just like to thank you for taking some of the pressure off of us of trying to figure out a name for this episode because cowboy capitalism just pops right there, man. So I appreciate that. <laughs> That's great. I'll I'll accept the royalties later. Indeed. Indeed. Well, thank, thanks, buddy. Thanks for your time. Thank you for listening to another episode of Texas Rising with Jeff Bailey and Ben Coleman. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review of the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, that's it for us this week. And remember, folks, keep on the straight and narrow. Don't mess with Texas. And we'll see you next week on Texas Rising.